Well, if you'd keep your Bibles open to uh, Genesis 42. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the life of Joseph. We'll take a little break over the next weeks for our Christmas services, and then we'll, uh, we'll be back to it. How does God change people? How does he transform lives? We know he does. We've all seen it. Sometimes it's, it's radical. Sometimes it's rather subtle. But he, he transforms people. From, from rebellious sinners living for themselves with no interest in the things of God and really no hope in this world to joyous, saved servants of God. Many of you know that, that transformation in your own life. But the question is, is how? What happens? What is the process? Well, today's text, I think, is a, a chance for us to stop and reflect on this, really in kind of a, a high-definition format. Because if you've been with us, one thing you know is uh, that uh, Joseph's brothers need changing. They are some awful, awful people. Simeon and Levi were guilty of murderous, premeditated genocide against the Shechemites, complete slaughtering of people in chapter 34. Reuben, the eldest son, committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to gain ascendancy over Jacob. A good guy, huh? All of them had taken young Joseph and stripped him and beaten him and thrown him into a, a pit with the intent uh, to kill him. And that was only averted by the passing Egyptian caravan and a chance to make some money to sell him into slavery. And the number four son, Judah, impregnated his own daughter-in-law who was disguised as a prostitute and then called for her to be burned alive when her condition was revealed. These guys are shamefully wicked men. Which begs the question across the whole patriarchal narrative, how, how is God ever going to use them? He's promised that through him he will, he will bless the world. He's promised that through them, these, these sons of Israel, these 12 sons, he will grow his people. He will become their rule, he, ruler. He will bless them. He will bless all the nations through them. How is that ever going to happen? You think, man, he's either got to destroy them all and start again, or he has to change them. They need to be transformed completely. And that's what this chapter, actually the next three chapters, are all about. The transformation of Joseph's wicked brothers. And it's beautiful. And it comes, it starts here in chapter 42 with three hard blessings that God brings to their lives. And the first one is simply this, guilt. The blessing of guilt. Now, I, I know that sounds a little bit off. We don't tend to think of guilt in positive terms. It's kind of a, a bad thing. 
It weighs us down. It brings shame. In fact, many in our society would say that that guilt is a bad thing, that it's not even real. It's just a religious construct used to control and manipulate people. Freudian analysis dismisses guilt as merely a safety device collectively created to protect civilized order, an illusion of narrow minds. So to guilt someone in our culture is kind of the ultimate relational evil. How dare you? You could damage them. And to be fair, guilt can be misplaced and abused and held onto in a damaging way, but the scriptures present Guilt, real guilt, as something good, that the pressure and weight of which can direct us towards growth and healing and even salvation. That's what's demonstrated here. Blessed guilt. That's point one. You see, as our passage opens, a famine has come across the whole land. It's the famine that Joseph predicted last week. He he predicted it Uh, as he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. A seven-year famine that has brought drought and starvation across not just Egypt, but, but the whole land, all the way to Canaan and beyond. But Joseph, in his presence and wisdom, has saved up stores of grain. He's been placed in that position by Pharaoh, to save the stores of grain, and he does, so that all the nations begin to stream into Egypt to receive life-saving blessing from, from God's man, kind of the bread of life. And according to verse 1, when Jacob heard about this, about this grain in Egypt, he, he says to his boys, I love this, uh, chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob heard that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? (laughs) And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy the grain for us there that we may live and not die. Quit staring at each other. Go do something. So they do. They trek down to Egypt. But the text informs us in verse 4, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Very interesting. Supposedly, he doesn't know what happened to Joseph, but he's not going to send his brother down, this favored, last favored son. No. He suspects something about the character of his sons. And that's in the back of their minds as they travel down. They're heading down to Egypt, the very place They sent Joseph, and their father won't send one of their sons with them. Makes you wonder if that began to scrape at their conscience, their hardened consciences. If it was kind of the beginning of God's work of awakening their guilt. Now picture them arriving there, fighting through the bustling masses to get their place in the grain line. Maybe they were in that line for hours, for days. I imagine it was long until finally it's their turn. And they come before Joseph, Pharaoh's viceroy, put in charge of all the distribution, the one who basically decides whether people live or die. 
And the text tells us in verse 6 that they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Not an easy posture for a Hebrew before an Egyptian. But they have no choice. They grit their teeth and they bow their face to the dirt. They don't recognize Joseph at this point, we're told. It's been 13 years since they callously beat him down and threw him into the pit. Remember how they sat down to have lunch while he was in distress? He pleaded for his life. They were mocking him, the, the silly dreamer who thought they would bow to him. And now it's happening, their face on the ground before him. And they don't, they don't have a clue. Joseph has grown into a man, an Egyptian man, an aristocrat of Egypt. He would have been clean-shaven and tan, dressed in flowing white linen with embroidered headdress and golden jewelry and the, the color palette of the Nile royalty. They have no idea who they are bowing before, but he knows who they are. Verse 7 tells us he recognized them right away. Wow, what a moment. What a moment of uh, you know, poetic vindication, right? What would you do if you were Joseph? How would you, what would your response be? I know what I would do. I would be straight to gloating and taunting. I'd be right there. I'd be like, oh, well, look who we have here. Put your faces in the dirt. Get them in the dirt. Oh, yeah. Hmm, I might break right into Hebrew so they recognize my voice, right? Start speaking to them, taunting them. Who's bowing now? Oh. Hmm, what should I do? I need some household slaves. Maybe some... Uh, I need some brick makers at the pyramids. I could work out a job for you guys. What a chance to make them pay. And they deserve it. If that's where the text went, we'd all be sitting there right now going, oh yeah. But Joseph's better than that. He just pardons them on the spot, doesn't he? He just says, hey guys, it's me. Don't worry, it's in the past. I've forgiven you. How's dad? No, he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't taunt them. He doesn't pardon them. Either way, one would just embitter them. The other would kind of let them off the hook without dealing with their callous souls. What does he do? Well, it's kind of surprising. He enters into this kind of strategic ruse to kind of draw out, I think, their, their consciences and to awaken their guilt. First, he unnerves them with a wild accusation. He goes straight after these murderous, hard men with a, a serious accusation. Look at verse 9. And Joseph uh, remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. He remembers that this moment was predicted. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to spy out all the, all the weaknesses, you know, where we don't have defense. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers. 
the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. He gets them totally on the back foot, terrified in self-defense. In the midst of it, they, they start recounting. They just start speaking about, about who they are. We're, we're not spies. We're honest men. Well, you know, that's a lie. We're, we're the 12 brothers, the sons of one, one man. Oh, yes, the patriarchal sons of promise who have turned away in faithfulness and rebellion. Yes, two are not here. One is with our, our father, and the other one is no more. Imagine Joseph hearing that. They're proclaiming their own indictment. As they all know what one is no more really means. Joseph knows it. See, I think this is often where authentic guilt begins to awaken with, with a remembering, a recounting of who we are, even if it's in lies and the stuff we've done. Those things we've tried to push down and, and, and below the surface and forget and never mention again so it's in the past like it didn't happen. But then something happens, something traumatic. It drives it to the surface and we're confronted and we have to actually begin to verbalize about it. And every denial, every way we try to spin things, every edit, every gloss only deepens the reality of our actions because we know the truth. Every time we speak that lie, we know the truth. You can imagine them all glancing at each other as this edited version of their past is proclaimed. And then Joseph does something brilliant. Verse 14. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall, go, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether, is true, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them, catch this, all together in custody for three days. He commands them to, to send someone to get this supposed brother to prove their story. Or they're going to die as spies. And then he sticks them all together in one cell for three days and lets them stew with their collective guilty consciences and their corporate memory. What do you think it was like in that room? Think of... Uh, the finger pointing and the, the accusations, not only would their sin just be before them, but it was probably screamed across the room at each other. What a festering stew of rotting consciences. I think of, of David in Psalm 32 when he talks about how his unconfessed sin, when he tried to keep quiet about it, 
how, and repress it, how it made his bones waste away and tortured him day and night. Kind of have this, this stew rotting away. It's being stirred. I think it's starting to gurgle. It's a gracious torment, isn't it? That Joseph is putting them through. Re- reviving their repressed memories, disturbing their souls. Have you ever had such a, a disturbance in your life? It kind of awakened the, the guilt. I remember uh, the first time it happened to me. Somebody reminded me this, uh, the other, of this story the other night. I was just a kid. I think it was about nine or ten. And my buddy and I, he lived in the hills. We had uh, played with matches. That was something we liked to do. And uh, we ended up lighting his avocado grove on fire and burning down a whole avocado tree before a fire truck, fireman came and had to put it out. And it was a big deal. But when his parents, when the day ended, his parents drove me home and dropped me off. They didn't say anything to my parents. I went into the house. How was your day? Good. And for the next about two weeks, I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about it. My parents kept saying, is something wrong? Are you okay? I'm fine. And then, of course, my mom found out about it, and my parents cornered me in my room. I remember I was kind of against the bed. I couldn't go either direction. I didn't know what was happening. And they said, Carrie, you have anything to tell us? Have any, any story? No, no. Anything you may have done wrong? I said, oh, well, I broke a bottle in the street. You know, give up a lesser crime. And uh, just test the waters. And they said, no, I, I think it has to do with fire. And I don't remember this, but they tell me at that point that I threw myself back on the bed and I grabbed my neck and I said, I've been trying to tell you. I've been trying to tell you. It'd been eating me up. Of course, I got in trouble. I got a spanking, but it was a, a, a relief. Later in life, when I was a teenager, uh, this kind of thing happened again, but on a much more serious note. I was miserable in all my secret, two-faced sin that had been, I'd been repressing and, and hiding, and it was eating at me. It was destroying me. It was ruining my relationship with my best friend. And he came to me one night in the middle of the night, and he accused me. He said, I know, I know everything you've been doing. I know what's going on in your life. And he did. He knew the truth. He showed me my sin and my guilt, and he called me out. What a blessing. Because it was the prelude, right? The the, the, the torturous awakening that was the prelude to my salvation. Such guilt, real guilt, is good. It fosters life and restoration, and salvation. Have you been blessed with that disturbance, that awakening of guilt in your life? Maybe it's been recent for you. Maybe over the years your conscience has been so seared that the idea of guilt has become almost nostalgic. 
kind of memory of something you felt in your childhood before you grew up. Now you're just comfortably numb, as Pink Floyd would say. But recently, maybe you've been disturbed. Something has happened. Your conscience has been awakened. Things are coming to the surface that you can't seem to put out of your mind. Stuff you've pushed down, stuff you've rationalized away. It's coming back and it's pestering your thoughts. It's haunting your soul. Maybe you can't even sleep well. Don't ignore it. And don't try to escape by distracting yourself with busyness and endless streaming entertainment. Embrace your real guilt. It can be the prelude to grace and transformation in your life. That's what's starting to happen here. You see, after three days... Joseph releases them from prison and mercifully explains to them that they can, take, they can all take back bags of grain to their families. He's going to send them all back with food for their families, but they must leave just one brother behind to guarantee that they will return with that missing brother that he wants to see. There's a reason for that. We'll find out later. And look at what they say in this moment, verse 21, as he releases them. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. For the first time, they face the truth about themselves. And they begin to admit their guilt. They speak of their sin, and they know there must be a reckoning for his blood. And note their, their change of kind of heart tone towards Joseph before they scorned him, calling him the dreamer. But now they reflect on the distress and pain they caused him and they speak of him as our brother. Reuben calls him the boy. Something profound is happening in their, in their hard, calloused hearts. God is softening them as they face their guilt. He's, he's bringing them to see and to feel their own sin. And by the way, Joseph is, is witnessing this. He actually hears their words. Look at verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. He's listening. He can hear everything they're saying. And then he turns and he weeps. What a beautiful mo moment. Joseph, who holds all the power, he's God's ruler put over them. They must bow before him. Isn't doing this out of vengeance, is he? He's accusing them of espionage and imprisoning them and torturing their souls. This isn't about him getting his pound of flesh. This is about his deep love for his brothers. 
His deepest desire to see that, that they be transformed, that their hearts be prepared to receive God's salvation, which he can see coming. His strategic torment is a beautiful work of love and grace. And he's not done yet. He knows they need a second hard blessing to continue in their transformation. And, and, and that is, you know what the second blessing is here? Fear. Moves them from guilt to the blessing of fear. Again, not something we would ever call a blessing. Fear is that anticipation of bad things, that emotion that we all avoid. But Joseph knows they need it. They need to be gripped by real fear, the fear of God. Look at verse 18. This is when Joseph is proposing to them his new plan for them to go home with full bags of grain and return with Benjamin as proof. Look at what he says. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. He uses the word Elohim, the Hebrew term for God. Up to this point, not one of these ten brothers has ever mentioned the name of God. But now this Egyptian, pagan for all they know, viceroy, brings Elohim, God, into the equation. In fact, he assumes accountability for him. That, that if he doesn't keep his side of the bargain, he's going to answer to them. What, what a dissonance. Oh yeah, God. Their God. The one who's blessed their people and promised salvation. The one who is holy and righteous and just, a consuming fire. The one they have forsaken and ignored and betrayed, living like he doesn't exist. Him. He is present. He is real, says, says this Egyptian. My friends, this is what makes their guilt real. The guilty weight they are beginning to feel is not just some subjective emotional response to them having a bad day, or it's not just them feeling the pressure of having failed to keep some societal or religious construct that if they just free themselves from, they'll be fine. No, their guilt is the real deal because their sin is before God, the God of creation, the constructor of all reality. I think we often like to think of our sin in very horizontal terms. It's just something that I've done, you know, this way against this person or that person. And the consequence can maybe only come back this way from that person I've offended. So, so what they did to Joseph was bad, but as far as they know, he went off into slavery and probably died. And as long as they keep their little secret, there will be no consequence. They, they can live out their life just fine, take it to the grave, the end. You see, if sin is just this way, the only moral is don't get caught. I remember I tried this uh, view on my mother when I was younger. 
think I was about seven at this time. It was during a period in my life when I was trying out smoking. Yes, I started young. Me and my buddy were collecting little butt cigarettes off the, under the bleachers at the high school and putting them in our little can, fill it up, and then we would smoke them in the garage. And I decided I was going to hide this brilliant place in my sock drawer. So I come home from school one day, and there's my mom with the can. What's this? Trying to explain the whole thing, and my mom says, Carrie, how could you do this? Didn't you know this is wrong? And I said, well, it is now. (laughs) No, it wasn't before. And she said, no. No, no, it's always wrong. I may have not known, but God knows. He sees. Even what's in, the sock, what's in the sock drawer, he sees. You see, our sin is, is ultimately, it's, it's vertical, it's against God. It breaks his standards, it breaks his heart. And to him, we will answer. There's no not getting caught. We're already caught. And this should bring fear. A real, godly, good fear. And Joseph, to help his brothers get this, doesn't just, you know, posit the idea by mentioning the name of God. No, he also continues with his gracious, tormenting strategy to help them feel it. As we read on in the story, we get to verse 25 and it says this. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give their provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They know when they see the money in the mouth of their bag, it doesn't matter how it got there. It's there, and they will be accused of trying to rip off Pharaoh. They'll be tried as spies and thieves. They'll be executed. They're done. Their hearts fail them. They're trembling with fear before who? Before God. They say, what is this that God has done to us? For the first time, they fully own their guilt before God. They know he is present. They know he is acting on them, that he is their judge. And they tremble in fear. It's an incredibly blessed moment, isn't it? Because if you know the rest of the story, which we're going to get to after Christmas, it's, it's, it's the precursor to their salvation, to God restoring them as his people, to God using his shepherd ruler to lift them up 
in forgiveness and save them from sure death and transform them as his children. It's all through the tormenting grace of guilt and fear. And it brings them to one more hard blessing that I've titled Total Desperation. You see, as the brothers arrive home and recount to their father all that has happened in a carefully edited and truncated way, if you notice, they open their bags, all of them, to find that their money is in in the mouth of all their bags. Things go from bad to worse. It says that when they see it and when their father sees it, they're afraid, they're terrified again. They're all going to be indicted. They're all as good as dead. How can they ever save Simeon now? And we read verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Now how there's ten others, but... If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Their father has given up hope. Joseph is lost. Simeon is lost. And Jacob won't risk Benjamin, the only last one he thinks is any good. His wretched sons have ruined anything, everything. And although Reuben is is so desperate to save the day, to somehow make things right, so that he's even willing to risk the lives of his two sons rashly and I think foolishly offering them as some type of collateral. I mean, how desperate can you be to say that? His father still won't allow it. And it ends at this point with nothing but pathetic sorrow and desperation. But of course... That's right where they need to be, owning their guilt, fearing the Lord, totally desperate. These are the blessings of God's transforming work. They are very, the, the very posture of one ready for his salvation, which is about to happen in part two after Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for for guilt. Thank you for good fear. Thank you for desperation, for doing that in our lives and continuing to do it bringing your spirit to convict us that may we, we may respond and be saved and transformed. Lord, bring us to that point every day that we may know you and live. Amen.